a pretty uh, overwhelming introduction, um, so I don't really know where to begin. I would like to thank those of you who come here, my sister, my nephew, I have lots of children and grandchildren, but one, only one niece or nephew, and Simon Hughes, the distinguished Winnipeg artist. Um, old friends, new friends, friends from college who opposed each other and mock parliament. I don't see any of the people who were on, who were on the same side. Um, from the Winnipeg Foundation, uh, and, a, and among the new friends, Jennifer Jensen, where we had dinner last night. Jennifer teaches in collegiate, and she is one of this year's winners of the Outstanding Teacher Award, Governor General's Award, or, uh, given by Canada's History Society. A delight for me to be on Chestnut Street, where I lived when our first son was born. And Shirley Smith, who helped me with my, uh, what, what did we call it, our, my minor thesis when I did the course with W.L. Morton, the first course in historical methodology ever offered in Western Canada. I've heard since then that that's all they teach now is methodology and they don't teach history, I not, but I don't know if that's true or not. Um, and by the way, the project we worked on was what was then called uh, the Massacre of Seven Oaks, which of course is a politically incorrect term now. Uh, but this year will be next year will be marking the 200th anniversary of that famous unfortunate collision. I think that's what uh, another academic at the University of Manitoba called it. So it's great to see you all here. Um, I uh, but let me get on with it. The, the the new book that my colleague Chris Kobraka and I are writing. Chris is an American who uh, did both his MBA and his PhD at Columbia, and, but for the past 25 years has taught at the École Commerce Supérieure de Paris, but as of July 1 is now the chair of Canadian Business History, which position I could not hold because I don't have a union card. Um, but the, the theme of our, our study is to, we're calling it from Wall Street to Bay Street, a comparative history of the financial systems of the two countries, the United States and Canada, that enormous area north of the Rio Grande River, settled by, basically, by the British, or at least the laws were. But nobody's really compared them, and yet they've got dramatically different financial systems. Why is that? So that's what we want to explain. And, and while we're being very careful not to be partisan, like Joe defending the Canadian system and Chris defending the American system, Chris has hinted that since 2008 he thinks there might be an opportunity to affect some change in the United States. We'll see. So we were, we're going to cover the period from the mid-18th century to 2008. I don't, we don't have time for that tonight. Paul and I have sort of agreed on a time limit. So I'm going to begin in 1812 and end in 1999 and not deal with 2008, but if you want to talk about the 18th century, I'd be happy to do that in question period. If you want to talk about 2008, I'll be happy to do that in question period. But I begin in the, with the War of 1812 because of the enormous impact that it had on the financial system in Canada. In 1812, the normal currency in the British American, uh, North American colonies was specie, the most common specie was the Spanish doubloon, where we get the word dollar from. 
And then the Americans declared war on Great Britain, but the battle was fought in Canada, and certainly the city where I lived since 1968 was taken and sacked. Um, and I'm not sure if any of you are aware of Pike's Peak in Colorado, but if you've ever seen Pike's Peak, Pike was killed in Toronto in 1812 as the British strategically retreated and blew up their dynamite stores. Now what's the War of 1812 got to do with uh, money and banking? Well, the, both the British imperial uh, uh, authorities and the French Canadians in the assembly, the lower house in, in the province of Canada, opposed paper money. Uh, and the, there were different reasons for their opposition, but they opposed it. But when you're fighting a war, think of paying soldiers, think of people who are providing you with horses, think of people who are providing you with food, what it would be like, especially in the large country we live in, the area that has to be covered, to carry all that specie around. Specie is heavy, difficult to move, and so the imperial authorities authorized army bills, paper money. And uh, they were very popular as a medium of exchange, and there was not inflation. And after the war was over, they had a time limit to 1816. And as they phased out, people got very upset because they had to revert back to specie. And so a group of Scottish businessmen, and Montreal had become a great center for the Scots after the conquest in uh, 1763, they started a bank, Canada's first bank, called the Bank of Montreal. Now, Newfeld says that they, for the first three or four years, they operated illegally without a charter. When they celebrate their bicentennial, the same year as Canada does, I don't think they'll mention that fact. But from the day one, they believed in the distinctive feature of Canadian banking, branch banking. There was a branch in Kingston, there was a bank, branch in King, uh, Quebec City, and other banks followed, both in Atlantic Canada and in the in, in and two Canadas, Lower Canada and Upper Canada. In fact, the First Bank of Upper Canada was very much like the Hamiltonian model, which envisaged government part ownership of the bank. Now, speaking of Alexander Hamilton, um, he was, in my view, the closest thing to genius among the, the, that extraordinarily group of talented people around George Washington. And when the Bank of Montreal drafted their charter, if you compare the charter of the Bank of Montreal with the charter of the First Bank of the United States, often the words are identical. And I guess the other great innovation was limited liability, so that the directors had limited liability. So that was the scene in early 19th century Canada. Now I've got one prop here. And this, in a nutshell, will tell you the difference between the United States and Canada. That's the $10 bill, and that's Alexander Hamilton's picture. This is the $20 bill, and that's Andrew Jackson. And as I like to say to American audiences, until you get that guy's picture off the $20 bill, you're in trouble. And you've got a great opportunity right now because you need a female on a bill. So get rid of him. But what he did was destroy the Hamiltonian system. 
and create the bizarre system that the United States has. Because if you look at our system, it varies, it's different from some countries, but the United States is so different because of what Jackson brought in. State banking could not have interstate banking. To this day, I don't think the biggest bank in the United States would be in more than half the states. And in many states, you were allowed one branch. And that was it. And no national regulation of banking. And so it, it was a, it's a most unusual system. There's a recent book out which is entitled Fragile by Design. And you may criticize the Canadian system, but it's not fragile, and it's certainly not fragile by design. Now we move forward to the key period of 1864 to 1873, when the Fathers of Confederation met first in Charlottetown and then in Quebec City. They may not have had the internet, but they certainly had newspapers. And new, those newspapers were giving comprehensive coverage of the devastation in the United States of America. More Americans were killed in the American Civil War than in all the wars fought by the United States since. Terrible loss of human life, and there were financial failures. And the Fathers of Confederation didn't like the American system before the Civil War. They didn't think they had democracy. They thought they had mobocracy. And they looked at what was going on. They said, we have to have a different system. Throughout the Civil War, the Canadian dollar traded, on average, at a premium of 10% to the US dollar. At one point, in April 1864, you could have bought an American dollar for 40 cents Canadian. And what happened is that great Confederate general, Jubal Early, crossed the Potomac unnoticed and attacked Washington from the north. Lincoln could see them coming. They closed the gold room. And that's when you could have made a, yourself a very large fortune if you could have got a lot of American dollars for 40 cents Canadian. And so what the fathers recommended to the imperial authorities was that from day one, banking and currency be part of the British North America Act. Now, if you want to Google the American Constitution, do word search for banking, you will not find the word anywhere in the Constitution. And that's why they had so much struggle on who's responsible for banking and finance. Then, that was a very fundamental decision. So, and you know the political decisions. Our, the politicians in, in our country knew that they were in stalemate. Uh, they knew that uh, Prime, Prime Minister, or Secretary of the, of the Exchequer, Mr. Gladstone, thought they were costly, was not particularly positive towards them, and they also saw this massive military force, the largest army in the world right next door, and these factors led them to come forward and create a new country. So the country was created and began on July 1st, 1867. Well, in any country, you have to have a sound financial system. The first minister of finance was Alexander Galt, one of the great fathers of confederation, the first person who in the legislatures of Canada proposed that we have a confederation. But he was heavily invested in the Midland Bank, uh, commercial bank, and he thought the government should bail out the bank. 
Johnny McDonald and Cabinet did not agree, so within a matter of months, the First Minister of Finance resigned. Johnny turned to his closest friend in, in, the, in the Parliament, Sir John Rose, and Sir John Rose was an interesting person because occasionally you get them in politics, but rarely, more a businessman than a politician. Those of us of our age would think of Robert Winters. Uh, more recently, I would say Mr. Emerson, who served both as Minister of Trade in the Liberal and Conservative governments. And in 1871, Sir John Rose, a very distinguished gentleman, close friend of the Prime Minister, proposed a Bank Act in the House of Commons, seconded by the Prime Minister. Um, it lasted, I'm going to exaggerate slightly, 24 hours in the order paper. But because the reaction was so negative, if we'd had an internet, it probably wouldn't have lasted 24 minutes. Because the Westerners, I know this is going to be hard for you to grasp, but the Westerners were people in Ontario. <laughs> and they were outraged with the legislation. Because what the legislation did was basically make the Bank of Montreal like the Bank of England and every other bank would be a country bank. And that infuriated them, particularly Sir William McMaster, who McMaster University is named after, but he had been on the board of directors of the Bank of Montreal, the most prestigious bank appointment in Canada, and at that time the Bank of Montreal was one of the largest banks in North America. Indeed, at the end of the 19th century, I would say the top six banks in North America, three were Canadian. Our banks were big and their banks were small in those days. And so McMaster quit the board of the Bank of Montreal and in 1867 founded the Canadian Bank of Commerce. Now in addition to founding the Canadian Bank of Commerce to look after Western interests, again that's people from Ontario, what he did was, he was chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which is a pretty good position to be in if you're dealing with banking legislation. And um, so he was watching all of this with care. Sir Johnny Macdonald was also watching. Think of what Sir Johnny was facing when Sir John Rose, after being rejected in the House of Commons, decided to leave to go to London, where he founded a very profitable uh, investment bank, and the CEO of the Bank of Montreal got out of the country. And so Sir John A, 1871, you all know what was going on here. There were certain issues, uh, though you were already admitted to the, into Canada, it was under very difficult circumstances. There was threat of rebellion. In Nova Scotia, there was almost outright secession. And he's, has, he's, got, to get a, he's got to get a Minister of Finance. So he turned to Sir Francis Hinks, who happened to be visiting Canada. Sir Francis Hinks, a lot of historians have put him down for reasons that I don't think are entirely valid. He was Inspector General in the old province of Canada, which is like Minister of Finance. He became First Minister, and then he was appointed by the Imperial authorities to be Governor in the two Caribbean countries. Sir Johnny Macdonald, we often talk about his political skill, but he had great managerial skill. He got on the train and went to Montreal to meet with Sir Francis Hinks. And so he didn't summon him, he went to him. The other thing he did 
was he, what the general history textbooks will tell you that Johnny MacDonald needed Hinks to shore up the liberal conservative coalition. Johnny was a conservative, Hinks was a liberal. But I've never seen a general history point out the fact that Hinks knew finance. He'd be minister of finance, he'd governed two important colonies, and you had to know finance. And so while he may not have been the great intellectual that Alexander Hamilton was, he was more than competent. And so what did he do about the, uh, getting us a bank act? Well, he did two things. One relates to substance and one relates to process. Dealing with process first, he went out and talked to people. He talked to politicians. He talked to the media. He talked to bankers. And the key compromise he brought about was under the former proposal from Sir John Rose is that the government of Canada would take over the printing of all dollar bills. Now the bills, and there weren't that many deposits in those days. Bills were the key liability of the bank which they used to convert to their assets. And they were going to lose that under the former proposal. The compromise he came up with is that the government of Canada would print small bills the banks would retain printing of bills four dollars or larger and that compromise was accepted and so the combination of the substance and the way he handled it we got a bank act in 1871 now the important thing about that bank act it was judged to be the best in the british empire at the time was a provision that said every decade there shall be by law review by Parliament. Think of that, 1871, and they fi already figured out that this, this act which they've passed may not be that relevant 30 years from now, never mind 150 years or 180 years. That law still stands, only it's now every five years. Contrast that with the United States. The Dodd-Frank Act was the first major legislative change since uh, the 1930s in the United States with Glass-Steagall. And so, and the Dodd-Frank Act, I think is, what, 1,000, 2,000 pages and more regulation, and you're dealing with something so sensitive as a financial system. So from the very beginning, we've had a deal whereby the bankers and the pe elected people come to a conclusion on the banking system we want. So, I'm going to now move to the 20th century, but I want to bridge by talking a little bit about what was happening here in Winnipeg, because as I prepared for this talk, I realized that perhaps what I was writing was too, too uh, upper Canadian. Uh, be, and never, you know, you find that California and BC are so different than the eastern part of the continent. But what was different here, I mean, you, you had a strong barter system from the days of the Hudson Bay Company, but by 1878, Canada's first bank, Bank of Montreal, had their first branch in Winnipeg, and that was the first branch bank in Winnipeg. But I guess the really interesting thing about Winnipeg was you had a private bank, Alloway and Champion. And Janet Walker kindly took me to see archway yesterday and the widow's might and that in all Canada is the largest private bank there ever was. It wasn't just large in Winnipeg, it was the largest private bank we've ever had and I think 
some scholar here should take it upon himself or herself to do more work to make known just what an enormous contribution that Alloway and Champion made. In 1918, the North End branch of Alloway and Champion was the largest branch of any bank in Winnipeg, larger than the Bank of Montreal, larger than the Bank of Commerce. So, and another interesting thing about Winnipeg's history, I think most of you are aware that the Royal Bank, for most of the 20th century, into the 21st century, has been the largest bank in the country. In 1900, the Royal Bank of Canada was the 10th largest bank located in Halifax. They became the largest bank in Canada in 1925 when they acquired the Winnipeg-based Union Bank. And I have a particular interest in that because my late father-in-law, who died long before I met him, he died quite young, when he started with a bank, it was with Union Bank. And then he went, became part of the Royal Bank, and they've got very good archives, and I've got my uh, father-in-law's uh, personnel records, which showed a steady increase in salary until the Great Depression, and then a steady decrease in salary. And, and in those days, you may not know this, but you couldn't get married if you were a banker uh, without the bank's permission at below a certain salary level. So the story goes that my mother-in-law said to him in 1932, um, we're, we're getting married, and said, but what will I do? She said, you better figure that out. And they, got, and they got married. Anyway, speaking of the Great Depression, this was an extraordinary period in financial history. Most people are aware of the fact that for the decennial review that year, they had a royal commission chaired by Lord Macmillan from the United Kingdom. It was an intriguing commission because there were five commissioners, two Brits, three Canadians. Um, and at the time, normally, they had a, uh, would have an American and a Brit and some Canadians. And when the vote came of the commissioners as to whether or not we should have a Bank of Canada, Central Bank, remember the United States had had a central bank since 1912, the vote was three to two, with the two most distinguished Canadians voting against having a central bank. One was Sir Thomas White, the greatest minister of finance we ever had, who Bennett had tried to get into his cabinet, and uh, the general manager of the largest French-Canadian bank. Now, what I found interesting about this as I read the debates in the House of Commons is the debates, and it sort of tells you something about Canada. I'll leave it to you to tell me what it says. The only debate was whether the bank should be owned by the people through their government or by private shareholders. Nobody in the House of Commons discussed the objections to the bank, uh, which were spelled out by the uh, two royal commissioners. And the government of the day, Mr. Bennett, thought it should be owned by shareholders to keep it independent of the government. Uh, and that's how it was the original vote for the uh, Board of Directors for the Bank of Canada was conducted by the Chamber of Commerce but the government changed and it was nationalized and taken over. So that was one major factor, a huge factor. We got a central bank, but for political reasons, not for economic reasons. And the head office of the bank was put in Ottawa in neither Montreal nor Toronto. And in, scholars often wondered in Canada why it took so long to get a single financial center. But clearly the government of the day said, 
we don't want to favor either Montreal or Toronto. The next thing that happened is that in the 1920s, the Montreal Stock Exchange was huge compared to the Toronto Stock Exchange. Their underwritings were industrials and banks and railroads. In Toronto, you had two exchanges. One was a mining exchange, and they were underwriting mining shares, including in Western Quebec. So the Great Depression comes, the stock market collapses, and what happens? Well, first of all, there was concern about securities regulation. The Ontario government, which had received the largest majority ever attained by a government in Ontario the day after the stock market crash, appointed George Drew, who went on to political fame, as the securities commissioner before FDR appointed the SEC. And it was his job to bring some order out of chaos. The Attorney General of the day, Mr. Price, was very concerned about this mining exchange in Toronto, which was really did things that shouldn't be done. Uh, and uh, so, but they were very conservative people. They didn't believe in government action, but they did believe in moral suasion. So the Attorney General told George Drew, you get those two stock exchanges to merge and start getting standards. And that's exactly what they did. And Toronto became the, the then and there became the predominant exchange in Canada, helped immensely by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who raised the price of gold by 60%, and that was very good for Toronto and Ontario. So that if you were in mining country in Ontario in the early 30s and trying to buy a Cadillac, you couldn't get one because the demand was so great, the supply was so limited, whereas in the prairies, people were driving Bennett buggies. But that was the difference between Ontario and the prairies. Uh, but the story I would, now I think you have to have some stories, the story I found most intriguing in the 30s was Sir Herbert Holt, the most powerful businessman in the first half of the 20th century, was chairman of the Royal Bank. That was in the days when the chairman was a businessman, not a banker. And he was chairman of 40 other companies. Montreal Light, Heat and Power. People paid their money to buy his electricity and buy his gas, all kinds of things. So the depression hit. And not only was he the most powerful businessman in the country, he was the most hated. And he got a lot of death threats. And he liked to walk to work. And he had a mansion at the top of the Westmount. And in those days, the Royal Bank was down on St. James Street, now Rue Saint-Jacques. So in order to continue his walks to work, he had four armed guards. Now, that's not your typical picture of Canada. One night in the spring of 1932, the doorbell rang, and it was the chairman of the Montreal Stock Exchange. So he invited him in. The chairman of the Montreal Stock Exchange pulled out his gun, pumped three bullets into him, <coughs> assuming he'd killed him, went home and killed himself. The Montreal Stock, the New York Times reported the next day that the Montreal, chairman of the Montreal Stock Exchange was dead. They did not give any indication of how he died or the circumstances. <coughs> No daily newspaper reported this. I first discovered this, I was so stunned, I went up to a graduate and an honorary doctor of the school, who happened to be at our school, Don Newman from, of CBC fame, and I said, 
Don, I know you're busy with this conference, but I got a business history question I've got to ask you. I said, what can I possibly tell you about business history? I said, well, how could this be? And he had a wry smile on his face. He said, it just shows, <coughs> excuse me, the Canadian business establishment was in even greater control then than they are today. Anyways, there was a tabloid in Toronto called Hush. They published about it. But I was really curious, so I phoned the longest living, the oldest living, former CEO of the Royal Bank of Canada, Alan Taylor, who, like me, is from Saskatchewan. I said, Alan, what was the culture of the bank that, you know, when you had something so traumatic? He said, oh, Joe, I don't think anything like that ever happened. I said, Alan, you were the one who commissioned the history of the bank, and there's one sentence in there about it. So it's a mystery to me. That's it. Isn't that a fascinating story? And, and people say Canadian history is dull. I find it's anything but. I'm going to skip on the uh, Sun Life. I want to talk to you briefly about housing. When I met with my colleague, uh, Professor Kobrak in Paris, I said, why do we have a section in this course on finance about housing? And he looked at me and said, have you ever heard of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Ooh, yes, I see. So I started, because housing doesn't feature as much in our literature. But uh, a graduate of the University of Manitoba, whose last name is Wardaw, now at the University of Western Ontario, has written a biography of W. Clifford Clark, whose name may not be familiar to you, but W. Clifford Clark was appointed Deputy Minister of Finance in 1932 or 1933. Up until that point in time, we did not have particularly competent management in the Department of Finance, we all take it for granted now that the Department of Finance is pretty well managed, but it didn't used to be. So, and I can remember when I worked at Monarch Life, 10 years after Clark was dead, businessmen would talk about this man, and when he retired as deputy minister, the business community took up a collection so he would have an adequate pension. They didn't think the government would pay him enough. Clark, uh, had graduated from Queens, as so many of the, uh, the, our mandarins did, went to the United States, into the real estate business, owned a property in Scarsdale, New York, came back, lost his house in Scarsdale, but he shaped public policy towards housing. And this is what he said. And think, think of the image of the Americans being sort of right-wing conservatives and us being left-wing socialists. Here's our housing policy. Having a home of your own should be a reward of saving and sacrifice and not a gift of a benevolent government. Now, can you imagine any U.S. congressman saying that? And if he did, what his fate would be? So our system, parliamentary system, and their congressional system contributes to their much more populist government, which has profound effect on our financial system. I'm going to jump now to the 1980s. And while generally speaking, I think our banks have done well, the 90s, 1980s were not their fi finest decade. The LDC crisis, which many people have forgotten, um, was characterized by terrific, irrational lending 
by bankers around the world, and the Canadians were in the lead. I think per capita we were second or, or first or second. And that was lending money because of the petrodollars to the less developed countries, primarily in South America. And the reason the bankers stampeded to do the lending was because Walter Rister, from CEO of Citibank, said, countries don't go broke. Countries don't go broke. I mean, anybody who studied history know countries go broke. And Prime Minister Trudeau was hosting a conference in Toronto in 1982, and all of a sudden he, he was speaking and most of the people were leaving. And he was not used to that, but the word was out that Mexico had defaulted. And so there was a great deal of panic. At the same time, for those, a number of us will remember, the early 80s was a very tough period in terms of the economy. Companies like Massey Ferguson were going under. Then we had the National Energy Program, and companies like Dome were going under. And then in the mid-80s, we had our first bank failure since 1923. And what people normally talk about is two Alberta-based banks. For some reason, they forget that there were five banks that went under. In addition to the two Alberta ones, there was Mercantile, Bank of British Columbia, and Continental Bank. So we had significant bank failures. And meanwhile, the superintendent of banking, Mr. Kennett, as the banks were failing, was on a two-month uh, cruise, and he didn't return home. So to say that we had competent management or competent supervision in this time is just wrong. We had very bad banking management. We had very bad banking supervision. And this led to the creation of the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, which changed things dramatically. And along with the original legislation back in the BNA Act, 1871, to my mind, is one of the reasons we came through so well in 2008. I don't have time to talk about the little bang right now, but if anyone wants to talk about that, I'll be happy to. I want to close with a story from the late 1990s. That's when the Government of Canada blocked the merger of the Bank of Montreal and the Royal Bank, the Toronto Dominion Bank, and the Bank of Commerce. In my book, uh, the, there's a case on the Royal Bank annual general meeting in 2006. And it's both a look backwards and a look forward. And in the case method, what I find, it takes you four or five times to get it right. And what I do after every class, I go to my office and I evaluate the students for their participation and then I do a self-evaluation. And after teaching that the fifth time, I said, I think I finally got it right. The next morning, a student came to see me, who I knew before he'd come into the class. And he said, Joe, I was really disappointed with class yesterday. Oh my God, what now? What did I do wrong? And he said, well, you know, the case is really good the way you described what happened on the bank mergers, but you didn't talk about it in class. He was right. So by serendipity, that later that day, I was meeting with Charlie Bailey, the CEO of the Toronto Dominion Bank. 
And I suspect most of you don't know Mr. Bailey, but he looks far more like an Irish leprechaun than he does the CEO of a bank. <laughs> and so I said to Charlie, I don't want to pick scabs from old wounds, but would you mind telling me a little bit about the bank mergers? And he got this puckish grin on his face. And he said, did I tell you about Jean Chrétien? No, no you didn't. Tell me about Jean Chrétien. He said, well, when we heard the news that the Royal Bank and the Bank of Montreal were merging, we couldn't believe it. So we phoned Jim Peterson, who was the Secretary of State Finance under Mr. Martin, Minister of Finance, and we're not bringing pressure, but we got to know. This is pretty important for commercial purposes. So two or three days later, Dick Thompson from Winnipeg, who was the chairman of the board of the bank, received a phone call from Prime Minister Chrétien. Remember, Chrétien had been on the board of the Bank of, of Toronto Dominion Bank. And they said, hello, Dick. It's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, 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 I guess I should phone Paul. Paul who? <laughs> So that's, by sheer chance, I went, I was, I was going to the Toronto Club Christmas lunch, and I ran into a former Liberal cabinet minister, I told him that story, and he said, boy, does that ever sound like John Gretchen. <laughs> Anyways, he continued the story. He said that he, Charlie and Al Flood from the Bank of Commerce were summoned to Ottawa. So they flew up in the Commerce jet, and Charlie said, look at Al, we know we're gonna get our knuckles right that we've been bad boys, so why don't we revert to the old style and, and you get five, ask for, you have five minutes privately with the minister and I'll have five minutes privately with the minister. So that's what they did. So Charlie, a bit nervous, said to the minister, Minister Paul Martin, he said, sir, um, uh, I know we've been through a difficult time, but um, what would you think if the Toronto Dominion Bank bought Canada Trust. And the minister said, that's fine. Charlie said if he hadn't been sitting down, he would have fallen down. He said, no hurry, sir, we, you know, we could give you a, no, that's fine, go ahead and do it. So there's an interesting story about Canadian finance and banking there, so that they stopped the bank mergers, but but TD bought Canada Trust and became, in my view, even though I don't bank with them, the finest retail bank in Canada because of Canada Trust, not because of TD. And they're now one of the finest retail banks in the United States of America. And I think you know the story of the, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, cruise line that came into Halifax. A group of Americans got out and they saw the Toronto Dominion Bank and they said, oh, they got TD banks here too. <laughs> So that's an overview. It all began with Alexander Hamilton. I've covered an awful lot of ground. Uh, and the big thing to take away is our syst consistent system of reviews, I think, makes our system a better one. And if I could just close on three remarks that were made in the beginning. I've, two, you asked about Duff and the floodway. Uh, I had enormous respect for Mr. Rob, for the office of the Premier, regardless of the holder, and the, and the Premier, but particularly Mr. Roblin. 
and I, I don't know if any of you have had the chance to ever be in the Premier's office in the Legislative Buildings of Manitoba, one of the finest offices you'll ever see. And I walked in his office, and I was in my early 20s, and he was on the phone, and he was holding the phone like this, and somebody was yelling at him, yelling about what a stupid decision it was to build a floodway, a waste of the taxpayers' money. And if you look at it, I do not think in the past 200 years there has been any public works project that has had in north of, north of the Rio Grande River that has had a greater cost-benefit ratio. Now, I've never told anyone who the person was on the other end of the line, and I never will, but I heard it. And the other, so I learned something from the floodway and from the lovely memorial park across the way because we had extraordinary opposition to that too. And I was so pleased when I was out in September to see the terrific use being made of that park. And my lesson was, you know, if you really have to fight for something and you believe in it, it's probably the right thing to do. I can think of some really dumb decisions we made that nobody opposed us on. And then they came back and criticized us afterwards. <laughs> and uh, I'd also like to thank Canada's History Society. I think I neglected to do that originally. Uh, but one of the things the University of Winnipeg Foundation Board and Canada's History Society always gave me lots of opportunities to come back to Winnipeg. Now I'm open. I'm open for questions if there are any.